I want to personally invite you to join me and all the other Brock stars for this year's 13th live and in-person plant stock event outside of Asheville, North Carolina in the little town of Black Mountain. It's 1,500 acres is loaded with wildlife, trees, trails, streams. It is a nature wonderland. And what's also a wonderland are all the incredible speakers that you get to hang with all weekend long, like Jane and Ann Esselstyn, Dr. Will Bolshewitz of Fiberfueled, Carly Bodrug, Miss Plant U, Dr. Gemma Newman is over from the UK. We have Dr. Don Musalem from the Mayo Clinic, John Mackey, the ex-CEO of Whole Food Market Stores, myself, Brian Hart, and a special appearance by the Plant Bros. Here's the kicker. All these Brock stars are there from Friday till Sunday, and they want to rub elbows with all of you, whether it's over buffets of Plant Strong Fair for breakfast, lunch, and dinner, whether it's going on an afternoon hike, a swim, pickleball, frisbee golf, kickball, cornhole, dancing. We're having live music. It's all there in this fun weekend extravaganza that we affectionately call Plant Stock. Simply go to liveplantstrong.com and then click on Plant Stock 2024 and grab yourself a ticket before they sell out. See you there. Times have changed. Now we have an imminent threat to all life on the planet from greenhouse gases. It's very serious and we could at some point reach a tipping point. So now the meat eater is saying, is saying, Rip, you know, enjoy your brown rice and vegetables, but I want to enjoy my cheeseburger. And, and we can reply, well, you enjoy your cheeseburger for as long as it allows us to breathe, mm-hmm. because that's what's at stake now. I mean, the meat industry is destroying the planet. I'm Rip Esselstyn, and welcome to the Plant Strong Podcast. The mission at Plant Strong is to further the advancement of all things within the plant-based movement. We advocate for the scientifically proven benefits of plant-based living and envision a world that universally understands, promotes, and prescribes plants as a solution to empowering your health, enhancing your performance, restoring the environment, and becoming better guardians to the animals we share this planet with. We welcome you wherever you are on your Plan Strong journey, and I hope that you enjoy the show. Hello, my Plan Strong Porcinos. I want to welcome you to another episode of the Plan Strong Podcast. I'm Rip Esselstyn. Most of you know me as the firefighter crusading for a Plan Strong lifestyle to rescue your own health, which is vitally important. Today, I'm going to be talking about something with even bigger implications. And I'm talking about rescuing this planet with playwright, screenwriter, and author Glenn Mercer. Glenn has written or co-authored a dozen books alongside plant-based Brock stars like Chef AJ, Howard Lyman, and Forks Over Knives Chef Del Shroof. He is with me today to discuss his latest book, Food is Climate, which zeroes in on the real leading cause of climate change, animal agriculture and consumption. My Porcinos, it is one thing to stop eating animals for your health. Indeed, it's, it's the best thing that you can do. And in this case, what's good for your body is also good for Mother Earth. Let's save life as we know it for future generations. And here to tell us why and how is Glenn Mercer. Hey, everybody. I want to welcome Glenn Mercer to the Plant Strong Podcast. I've known of Glenn since 2009. And I know that you're a very prolific writer. How many books have you written on being vegan? I think I've got 11 books that I either authored or co-authored. Wow. Wow. And so you consider yourself a playwright, a screenwriter, and an author, correct? Yes. 
All right. I want to dive right in because the latest book that you wrote, I'm going to hold it up right here. Food is climate. I read it over the last two days and it is a, it is a punch in the face. You, you don't hold back, not for a second. And I really admire, admire the way you've written this, but it is, it is a serious wake up call to humanity. And, um, and we, we got to get moving collectively and we got to move in the, in the direction that you talk about in this book, which we're going to, we're going to jump into here before we do. I want to read something that was written by Philip Wallen. Am, am I pronouncing that correct? I think he says Wolin. Okay. Philip Wolin, who actually did the, um, the forward for your book. He's the, the VP of Citibank or former VP of Citibank. And he's quite the environmentalist philanthropist and animal uh, rights activist. But he says, we freak out in the West when a thousand refugees arrive on our, sh- our shores. Imagine greenhouse gases hitting 500 parts per million or a three degree temperature rise, creating 100 million eco refugees. This calamity will reshape the geopolitical landscape forever. We are facing the perfect storm. If any nation had developed weapons that could wreak such havoc on the planet, we would launch a preemptive military strike and bomb it into the Bronze Age. But we can't because it's not a rogue state. It's an industry. Meat. The good news is we don't have to bomb it. We can just stop buying it. George W. Bush was wrong. The axis of evil doesn't run through Iraq, Iran, and North Korea. It runs right through our dining tables. The weapons of mass destruction are our knives, forks, and chopsticks. Um, and, then, and then he goes on to say a lot of you know, really amazing things and really nice things about you. Um, but before we dive in, Glenn, you've written this book, Food is Climate. Why should people listen to you? Well, you know, Rip, you and I have written books making the case on health. Yep. And it's, it's so important, you know, for everybody's individual life, what could be more important than their health? You know, I'm always amazed by people who love their families and eat cheeseburgers, because if you love your family, even if you don't care about yourself, you would want to eat plant strong, right? You'd want to care about your longevity and your health for, if not for yourself, at least for those you love, you know, so it's so important to take care of your health. But now we're talking about the health of the planet. So, you know, the argument used to always be between uh, meat eaters and, uh, and vegans or vegetarians about the cruelty to animals. And uh, effectively, the meat eaters would say, well, I know, but pig is delicious. Or I like to eat the way I eat, so I'm not stopping you from having brown rice and vegetables. Don't stop me from enjoying my cheeseburger. Mm-hmm. That, that used to be the argument, but times have changed. Now we have an imminent threat to all life on the planet from greenhouse gases. It's very serious, and we could at some point reach a tipping point. So now the meat eater is saying, is saying, Rip, you know, enjoy your brown rice and vegetables. I want to enjoy my cheeseburger. And and we can reply, well, you enjoy your cheeseburger for as long as it allows us to breathe, Mm -hmm. because that's what's at stake now. I mean, the meat industry is destroying the planet. It is the number one cause Mm -hmm. of greenhouse gases. Now, in the book, I adopt Silas Rao's uh, uh, peer-reviewed study that estimates 87% of greenhouse gases are from animal agriculture. I just saw a study today that got published. Someone else says 68%. Um, Well, whether it's 68 or 87, it's the leading cause of climate change. Yeah. And I want to, I want to come back to that in a sec, because I think that's very important, but you start out the first sentence of your book, basically saying that climate change is dire. And I just did a little research on, we recently had the the COP26 climate conference in Glasgow. 
And coming out of it, the United Nations Climate Change Executive Secretary basically writes how we've got to move forward. We have to hold you know, countries to some really higher standards if we want to really make a difference. And they're really, she's pushing for a generation green is what she's calling it, right? In quotes, generation green. And um, of course, the goal is carbon uh, neutrality by 2050 and preventing the heating of the planet by 1.5 degrees Celsius. And um, did you keep up with what was going on with COP26? Did they even touch animal agriculture? Barely at all. Barely, Barely at all. And, and uh, you know, I have friends who were climate activists who were in Glasgow. They, they even gave out my book. They handed a copy to Al Gore as he got onto an elevator. Mm-hmm, and mm-hmm. he looked down, he saw his name in the subtitle, and I'm told he looked interested. Uh, but um, they, they scarcely talk about animal agriculture. The leading spokesmen on climate, like Al Gore and Paul Hawken and Bill Gates and others, they, they only talk about fossil fuels. Mm-hmm. And fossil fuels are part of the problem. You know, I drive an electric car which would seem to be a good thing. But the truth is that when I plug it in to charge it, that electricity is being generated by coal. Mm -hmm, So mm -hmm. my car is running on coal, really. Um, So that's out of my control. I can't, you know, change the energy grid by myself. But what's in my control is what I eat. That's what's within all of our control. Yeah. Well, you have... You kind of in, in uh, believe it was chapter three, you started out by basically letting us know the story that we've been told. So according to the story that we've been told, what is the crisis, Glenn? The story we've been told is that the crisis is too many molecules of carbon dioxide in the atmosphere, uh, uh, radiating heat back to the planet and, uh, and, uh, and uh, raising surface temperatures. And uh, that the, the solution to that is to reduce fossil fuel burning. So switching from fossil fuels to renewable sources of energy and um, carpooling and, uh, you know, uh, having smart thermostats and things like that. Anything to reduce fossil fuel burning. And the truth is we've been trying to do that for 30 years. And we burn more fossil fuels now than we did 30 years ago. Mm -hmm. And what they always do is they kick the can down the road and they say, okay, we've got it. We've got the problem solved now by 2050, we're going to not going to be burning any fossil fuels. Well, if you could really do that, then do it tomorrow. Mm -hmm. You know, they, it's, it's, um, it's, it's insanity really to keep, proposing the same thing over and over again to say, in the future, we're going to reduce fossil fuel burning. Um, And to the extent, I mean, right now we're at 4% solar and 9% wind in terms of energy generation in the United States. We're a long way from carbon neutral. And when Al Gore, you know, flies on his private jet to Glasgow, then he, uh, you know, I guess he buys some carbon offsets (laughs) It's mm-hmm. what, the, what the Catholic Church used to call indulgences and, you know, to atone for his, the, the fossil fuels he's burning. We're not going to solve the problem that way. And if you think about it logically, it can never work as long as we're eating meat, because even if next week, magically, we had solar airplanes and everybody was driving electric cars and all the electricity was from solar and wind. Even if next week we were fossil fuel, we were done with fossil fuels, which would be a good thing. But even then the planet would keep warming up because we have 1.3 billion cows on the earth belching methane, Mm -hmm. which is 120 times as potent as uh, carbon dioxide. We have nitrous oxide from the fertilizer used to grow feed for the cattle. We have nitrous oxide and methane from the, from the cattle and the pig waste. 
you know so we have we have oceans being deadened by industrial fishing operations that are trawling the ocean floor and kicking up methane and carbon dioxide from the ocean floor something nobody could even measure mm-hmm. we have pasture maintenance fires i have an image of it a nasa image on the cover of my book these red areas are pasture maintenance fires that are set in grazing lands all around the earth which are set in order that anything the cows don't eat they burn uh, and it makes it easier for the cows to just have grass um so we have all these sources of greenhouse gases that won't go away just from uh you know from uh, electric cars Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. You use the term, and I think you borrow it from Celeste Rao, uh, the killing machine versus the burning machine. Yeah. And so the burning machine basically is, you're referring to what, the fossil the, fuels? The fossil right? fuels. Yeah. yeah. The fossil fuels and how that's just really not going not gonna, to uh, butter the biscuit, so to speak, right? Whereas That's, that's kill- not vegan. No, <laughs> it's not. As opposed to the killing machine. That is, if we really want to zero in on the heart of this 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 issue, we got to go after the killing machine, and that's where right. the the crux of everything is right is lying. Right, and that rip that's because if we stop the killing machine, uh, you know, I just gave you a fantasy where you know, if a week from now we had no fossil yep. fuel burning, let's do the better fantasy. A week from now, everybody eats like you and I eat, uh-huh. right? Everybody is plant strong. Everybody has no animal foods in their diet, which is something we can do. We can actually do that. Well, what happens then? Well, then we don't need the grazing land. Why would we need grazing land? So the grazing land is 37% of the non-ice land surface of the earth. That will go back to much of it to forest, to vegetation, and that draws down carbon dioxide. And Silas Rao's published peer-reviewed study showed that if 41% of the grazing land, which is the amount that was forest in the year 1800, that he could prove was forest in 1800, if that returns to forest, we're pulling down enough carbon dioxide to get us back to pre-industrial levels of carbon dioxide in the atmosphere. Yeah, incredible. Yeah. So if if, if in the good fantasy, everybody eats like you and I eat, then we have, we can restore forests. We can save the oceans because no one will be eating fish anymore. We won't need those ocean frogs. And we could have healthy phytoplankton population. The phytoplankton um, draw down carbon dioxide, emit oxygen, and they also emit a chemical called dimethyl sulfide that rises in the atmosphere, bonds with water droplets and forms clouds. Mm-hmm. You know, so we can restore the planet by leaving the, the, the oceans alone and by leaving enough of the earth alone that it could heal itself. Mm-hmm. As you talk about in your book, it's a very, very simple solution. This does not have to be difficult. Right. And everybody's like, oh, my God, it's going to be so you know, impossible, so difficult, so you know, oh, arduous. And the reality is. We, we got to do it. We got to yeah. do it. And the only thing that's at stake here is our civilization. It truly is. Yeah. Um, I want to I go back to Celeste Rao. And you said that you know, his, his paper that he wrote called the Climate Healers Position Paper uh, that came out in November of 2019, where he says that global greenhouse gas emissions from animal agriculture are responsible for 87% of global greenhouse gas emissions. Let's go back a little bit earlier because you talk about in your book how in 2006, the the Food and Agriculture Organization of the United Nations wrote a, a paper called Livestock's Long Shadow where they said it was 18%. Right. And then a couple of years later, we had the World Watch Report, part of the World Bank with Robert Goodland and Jeff Ang- Anhang. And they actually and their report said it was 51%. So my question to you is, how do we get from 2006, 18%, and then it was corrected to 14 and a half, and then 2009, 51, and then Celeste Rao, 87%. 
Right. Well, let's let's start with the FAO. The FAO yeah. works in tandem with agricultural interests around the world. So it's kind of analogous to the U.S. Uh, uh, Department of Agriculture creating our food pyramids. They're working with farmers, so they want to have make sure there's dairy in the in the food pyramid. Right. So the FAO is working with farming interests around the world. So when they came out with their paper, 18 percent. Uh, it was a shock to many people that they were estimating it so high. 18% is a big contribution to global warming. And they angered a lot of their constituents. And so that's why a few years later, uh, after consultation with the something called the Meat Secretariat and other food mm-hmm. interests internationally. They said, oh, I guess we overestimated it and they reduced it to 14.5%, which is still a big chunk of global warming, but they reduced it under political pressure. Right. But when they, when they said 18%, they were not including all kinds of ways in which animal agriculture creates greenhouse gases. Uh, so when uh, Goodland and Anhang came up with their paper in 2009. They included animal respiration. Animals breathe in oxygen, breathe out carbon dioxide. The UN FAO objected and they said, well, that's just part of the natural carbon cycle, right? Trees um, release oxygen, uh, take in carbon dioxide, release oxygen. Animals take in oxygen, release carbon dioxide. It's just part of the natural carbon cycle. Well, we used to have 6 trillion trees on the planet. We now have 3 trillion. We didn't used to have 25 billion farmed animals. So if you take the FAO logic, if we, if we get to the point that we have a trillion farmed animals and one tree left, are they going to say, well, it's just part of the natural carbon cycle? I mean, at some point, the numbers matter, don't they? Mm -hmm. How many trees there are and how many farmed animals there are. And we have more and more farmed animals and particularly ruminants that belch methane. So you have to look at another thing that the FAO did was that they undercounted methane because methane degrades in the atmosphere over time. So when it's initially emitted, it's 120 times as potent a greenhouse gas as carbon dioxide. But 100 years later, there's very little methane left because it's degraded into carbon dioxide. So they kind of average it out over 100 years. Well, Mm. we may not have 100 years, you know, at this rate. And so uh, the really uh, accurate way to to measure methane is by uh, its green ha- its global warming potential immediately, mm-hmm. 120. Um, Goodland and Anghang uh, averaged it out over, I think, 20 years, and they took the number, I think, 72. I would use the number 120. Uh, but in any case, the FAO used the number 20. So they didn't make methane as powerful as it really is. But the main thing that the FAO didn't take into account is called carbon opportunity cost. What if we didn't have all this grazing land and we let the forest come back? Mm. The FAO didn't look at that because they assume we have to have the grazing land. Goodland and Anghang looked at that, calculated that, but not to as great an extent as Silas Rao did. Silas Rao said, what if 41% of it comes back to forest? And that's why Silish's number was uh, more dramatic than uh, Goodland and Anghang. Let's take a minute to share another wonderful email from a recent Plan Strong convert. Rip, just a quick note to thank you for your incredible influence in my and my family's life. We are loving the Plan Strong products from Whole Foods and the online products such as the pizza kits and the big bowl cereals. Thanks to you and your mom, I now put grapefruit on my cereal every day. Who knew that would be so delicious? Your books are fantastic and full of shareable information when others question my plant-based diet. Love you and your wonderful dad, mom, and sister Jane. Thanks for everything, Cheryl. Well, Cheryl, 
big love and kisses right back to you. And yes, grapefruit on your big bowl is absolutely delicious. For anybody out there that has never even fathomed putting grapefruit on your cereal, give it a whirl. I think that you're absolutely going to dig it. And I love that Cheryl, even though she's like super new to the Plant Strong lifestyle, like just since 2020, I love that you're diving right into it and getting super creative. And that's also what's great about all of our Plant Strong products. Whether it's the pizza crust, the chilies, the stews, the granolas, the Rips Big Bowl, the new multi-grain flake cereal, you have a healthy and nutritious base and then you get to dress it up to your heart's content. And you simply can have all of these foods delivered right to your doorstep by going to plantstrongfoods.com. It could not be any easier. Kale, yeah. And while you're dreaming of your next Plant Strong meal, let's get back to Glenn, who continues to explain why our food choices matter so much. So will you dive a little bit deeper into, so methane, what, what produces, what causes methane? It's, like, it's from, from the yeah. bacteria in the digestion of food. Okay. And I've also heard that, you know, there's methane, for example, in the permafrost. And if, as, as we start to, you know, heat up and if that permafrost basically starts to starts to melt, we're in, we're in real trouble and there's going to be a lot of methane released there. Right. There are what we call climate tipping points um, where or positive feedback loops. Mm-hmm. As an example, uh, uh, the, uh, as the Arctic ice melts, well, the ice uh, reflects heat. Mm-hmm. So it's white, reflects heat. As the ice melts, turns into the ocean, which is darker, which absorbs heat. So if it absorbs heat, it gets hotter and more ice melts, turning into more water, turning into more heat, turning into more melting. So that's a a positive feedback loop. The same with methane. As it gets hotter, more methane is released from the permafrost, the permafrost thaws uh, in places like Siberia. Well, as the methane gets released, it gets hotter in the atmosphere, and then more methane is released. And there's enough methane that could be released that it could destroy civilization. We, we, can't, we can't let it get so hot that all the methane from the permafrost gets released. And how is that, per, how is that methane in the permafrost? Do you know what, how it got there to begin with? Uh, I, I, I'm going to say that it, it's, it's from or, organic uh, material, just like there's you know, coal in the earth. Mm-hmm. From from the, the decay of organic material, I'm going to suggest that I think it's just organic uh, materials that have been frozen in the earth. But maybe I'm sure a scientist can give a better right. answer. And do you know, like how close we are? Like what's what's it going to take for that to get touched? Do we know? I I don't think anybody knows. For I mean, there's already some methane being released, yeah. so I don't think anybody knows. You know, uh, it's it's what engineers call nonlinear systems, and they're very hard to predict. You know, maybe we won't hit that methane tipping point in in a hundred years, or maybe we'll hit it in five years. You know, I, I I don't think anybody really knows, and that's why a lot of what this is about is arrogance. Mm. Let's not be arrogant. We don't know. Um, how close we are to tipping points. Therefore, if we want civilization to continue, let's be as wise and cautious as we can be and let's not create any unnecessary heat in the atmosphere. And we could do that by getting ourselves healthy by eating plants strong. Mm -hmm. So, you know, why would we want to mess with nature this way and risk the tipping points? You showed us all the 
the fires going on here. And we also have with the, you know, the record heat and the record, the record dryness going on. We have all kinds of forest fires going on as well that are not intentionally set. Can you explain to the listener why the burning of forests is a climate catastrophe? Yes. Uh, And again, it's something that could be a kind of tipping point because when forests burn, all that carbon dioxide and black carbon goes into the atmosphere and uh, that makes it hotter. And when it gets hotter, it gets drier and, uh, and then more forests can burn. So that's another positive feedback loop. So, uh, you know, we've seen in the last decade in California that it's happening more and more, that California has been on fire. Um, And so the trees themselves, if we have healthy forests, they're they're the solution. We need the trees to pull down the carbon dioxide. Trees are our best hope. And so far, when you have a forest fire, you're losing the trees, you're losing the capacity to pull down, to sequester carbon dioxide. And at the same time, you're contributing carbon dioxide yeah. and other pollutants to the atmosphere. Um, are, are, are trees our best hope or is it the phytoplankton in the oceans? I, I, I'm not, it's above my pay grade. We need both. <laughs> okay. <laughs> need, need both. But in the book, you talk about how the ocean is actually responsible for, for sequestering about 40% right. of, uh, you know, atmospheric carbon dioxide. And, uh, and we got to do everything we can to preserve the oceans because when the oceans die, we die. Right. You know, and Rip, I, I can't even believe that people who eat fish would want to keep doing what we're doing because there won't be any fish left. Mm-hmm. <laughs> You know, I think people just believe in this myth, oh, the oceans are so big, there must be so many fish. Well, not at the rate at which we're catching them. Mm -hmm. You know, they have these mile-long fishing nets. So even if you wanted to eat the occasional fish, you should call for a moratorium on industrial fishing. And then maybe some years from now, you'll be able to eat the occasional fish. But, But we are extracting all life from the oceans. And again, when it comes to this question of how much of meat eating and flesh eating is responsible for greenhouse gases, remember they're trawling the bottom of the ocean. Nobody is there able to measure Mm. how much methane and carbon dioxide they're kicking up from the bottom of the ocean. Mm -hmm. So that's a disaster. And, you know, we should we have to understand that the, the real solution to the climate emergency is planet Earth. You know, it's just like if you get injured, you get wounded, the doctor maybe dresses the wound. And then what does the doctor say? He says, leave it alone. It'll heal. Right. The doctor never says, I want you to go home and scratch it. You know, mm-hmm. leave it alone. It'll heal. We are a self-healing mechanism and the earth is a self-healing mechanism. So the only way this crisis gets solved is if we leave enough of the earth alone that it could heal. And what is the human activity that is most responsible for not leaving the earth alone? And that is the activity of eating animals. Mm -hmm. You know, so much of the earth like I said, 37% of the non-Iceland surface of the earth is grazing land. Another 6% of the non-Iceland surface of the earth is used to raise food for animals. So that's 43% of the land. And then you got all the oceans that we're destroying with the fishing. So if we stop the fishing, we can still have our container ships and our pleasure craft just stop the fishing. Then we're leaving the oceans alone. That's 70% of the earth. We stop eating meat. That's more than another 10% of the earth. We're over 80% of the earth we could leave alone by stopping eating meat. And then I think we could still fly in airplanes occasionally and drive our cars, mm-hmm. you know, on the other 20% of the earth. Well, it, it goes back to the the burning versus the killing. And uh, we got to attack the killing immediately. I think, I think that the thing is, is just how do we, 
How do we get a, a culture, a society that what probably 92% of us are, are currently, you know, consider themselves probably omnivores eating meat. How do we get 92%? Let's just say of this country to, to see the light and, um, and make it happen. Uh, you've got people like Wakan Phoenix and Billy Eilish, uh, you know, some pretty big celebrities that are starting to, to scream it from the mountaintops, but, uh, I don't know what it's going to take. I, I truly don't. Yeah. This is the struggle that we're in and, and you and I are part of a movement of many people who are trying to make this case. Um, and I just have to hope that there's a, a tipping point too, in terms of public consciousness, mm-hmm. you know, th- there was with gay rights, you know, if it, I mean, 30 years ago, it was unimaginable that there could be gay marriage. And even when Barack Obama ran for president in 2008, he wasn't supporting gay marriage. And if he had been, he probably wouldn't have been elected, frankly. Hmm. And yet it hit a kind of, in public consciousness, it kind of hit a tipping point that most people realized, why are we discriminating this way? And, And then Suddenly we had gay marriage. And now if you ask the American people, they're overwhelmingly in favor of gay marriage. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. We, we have to follow that model. We, it has to be from the people up. The people have to change the way they eat. And then eventually the animal agriculture will fold. Mm-hmm. Well, I think you and I are also very, uh, very hopeful. And you and I have both witnessed with our own eyes what's happened with this plant-based slash vegan movement over the last 30, 40 years. And um, it is going, it almost is going at light speed, but we need to get it to warp speed. Yeah. And, um, but I'm, I'm amazed how far it's come since my father first started his research at the Cleveland clinic back in, in 1984. I want to come back. We were talking about the oceans. You have a sentence in your book where you say that whale feces indirectly helps create clouds and regulate the climate. Can you expand on that? Yeah. I I mentioned before about how phytoplankton seed clouds by releasing dimethyl sulfide that binds with water vapor. Well, what gives us a healthy phytoplankton population? And the answer is, among other things, whale feces. Mm. So that's a rich source of iron and other nutrients for the phytoplankton. So you see, this is part of the web of life. You know, nobody with a harpoon ever thinks about this stuff, but this is the web of life that we need to leave alone because that's the human arrogance of not knowing, not understanding this complex web of life and then messing with it. You know, it's like with with, with DDT, they thought they could, you know, solve the problems of, uh, you know, uh, pests and so forth with DDT and, and then they, birds were dying. You know, so don't mess with nature. There's a web of life that's incredibly complex and intricate and evolved over, you know, millions and mil- hundreds of millions of years. And you mess with it because you want to have whale blubber or something. And then you're, you're, you know, next thing you know, the climate is heating up. You also have a story of a, of an individual, <laughs> Who had an experience with a yeah. male with a whale? His name is Michael Packard. Can you tell us that story? Yes, this is from the news from last June, I think it was. Uh, he was a, he was still is probably I don't know a lobsterman in um, Cape Cod. Yeah, and uh, lobstermen, uh, uh, and I want everybody who eats lobster to think about this. What the lobstermen do is they set traps at the bottom of the ocean where the lobsters crawl, and those traps are connected to buoys at the ocean surface by ropes. And those ropes sometimes trap and kill whales. Uh, In that New England area, there are whales called the right whales, and almost all of them at one point or another have been uh, trapped by these ropes. Uh, So the, the right whale population is threatened. So Michael Packard was uh, one of the lobstermen, and he was uh, at work uh, in the ocean one day, and he got swallowed whole by a humpback whale. (laughs) Incredible. And he, you know, he's in the whale's mouth, 
thinking he's never going to see his children again, feeling the, the whale squeezing him. And then the whale, in a moment of compassion, spits him out. A friend witnessed it and said he came out flippers first. Right. And, and my question that I pose in the book, which I say that in a certain sense, all of humanity hinges on this is, has he learned his lesson? Is he still trapping? And I don't know the answer. I don't know what the man is doing. Is he still in the business of trapping lobsters? Mm -hmm. Or has he learned the lesson? Because I think that humpback whale was letting him out to teach us all a lesson. Let's, let's certainly hope so. Yeah. Another thing you talk about in the book that I'd love for you to speak to is you, you mentioned that the most significant fight on planet Earth right now pits the yellow dragon against the, green, the great green wall. That sounds like a, like a, Marvel, a Marvel movie. What, yeah. what do you mean by that? Well, this is in China where they're trying to um, keep the Gobi Desert from expanding. Uh, and there have been times when the winds from the Gobi Desert have, have uh, blanketed, uh, you know, the dust has blanketed Beijing and I think even other countries in, uh, in Asia. Uh, so the Gobi Desert is a threat. And, the, you know, the way you fight a desert is with trees. And it's difficult because you could imagine trying to plant trees in the middle of the Sahara. They're not going to take very easily. You have to kind of work from the outside in, from the borders in. And you, you really, uh, you need agronomists who, who know what they're doing and plant the right kinds of trees and take the right kind of care of them. Um, uh, but they're trying. And unfortunately, I think they've used too much monoculture in the past. So a lot of their trees have died, but they're mm. trying. They've had some success at, um, at uh, restraining the desert from expanding and expanding. And, and it's, a, it's an ongoing battle. Uh, and a similar battle is being fought uh, in Africa with the um, Sahara Desert and the Sahel Desert, where they're using trees and they're having, I think, uh, more success in the Sahel Desert to, uh, to uh, keep the desert from expanding and, and beat it back. You, you mentioned, too, that the genesis of deserts actually is kind of one of the secrets that hides in front of our eyes. What do you mean by that? Well, if you look at this image of the Sahara Desert, whoops, there it is. Um, we've seen that all our lives and we just assume, well, that was always desert. Well, it wasn't. We know that, you know, they know from, uh, uh, they go deep in the earth and they take cores and they examine mm -hmm. the evidence. We know that this was a lush forested area. Now it was forested and it had savanna for millions and millions of years. In fact, there were, there's even evidence that there were dinosaurs hundreds of millions of years ago in this area. Mm. So, and they have cave paintings. And the cave paintings in the Sahara show giraffes mm. and hippopotami. So we know that this was at least savanna and in some areas forest for millions of years. Now, just mathematically. What are the odds that an area was forested and had savannas for millions of years and in the last five, 6,000 years became desert when humans discovered agriculture 10,000 years ago mm. and started chopping down trees and uh, engaging in animal husbandry? Um, and in those cave paintings, they even show humans engaging in animal husbandry. So what are the odds that that had nothing to do with humans? Uh, there have been recent scientific papers that have made the case that the Sahara was at least in part man-made. Now, there are other factors. The traditional scientific explanation has something to do with wobbles in the Earth's axis, ax axis that causes more sunlight to hit, hit the area directly and makes it hotter. And I'm sure that was a factor. But I, I, could, I could guarantee you that another factor was, was human intervention. Mm. 
Um, and more and more scientists are, are coming to that conclusion now too. And it's interesting that those who still survive in the Sahara, a couple million people who managed to live in these harsh conditions, what do they do? Mm -hmm. They're engaged in animal husbandry. They're still doing the activity that's cr that created the, the environment they're living in. Same thing in the, in the Thar Desert in India. The, the leading occupation is animal husbandry. Mm. Yeah, um, <clears throat> that is really, really interesting to connect those dots. In the subtitle of your book, you make a response to Al Gore, Bill Gates, and Paul Hawken. You want to talk about, should we talk about Al Gore first? Anything, sure. anything you want to talk about Al and what, what Al's getting right and what he's kind of missing through the, through the trees? <laughs> well, yeah, what he's getting right is fossil fuels. Of course, we need to reduce the burning of fossil fuels and renewables are all to the good. Mm -hmm. uh, but what he's getting wrong is he's, he's uh, not discussing the leading cause of climate change, which is animal agriculture. It seems to be a subject he's uncomfortable with. He's a, I'm told, I mean, he claims to be a vegan. He doesn't like to talk about it. Mm -hmm. And I, I don't know if these, you know, I don't think Al Gore is running for office again, but it, maybe these are just the vestigial instincts of a politician, mm -hmm. you know, because it, he, he couldn't imagine getting elected running for office on a vegan platform. Um, so let's go. Okay. So I, I, I get it with Al and, you know, I think we all saw an inconvenient truth. And back in the day that, you know, that was, it, it really struck a chord with people. Yeah. Obviously. What, what about Bill Gates? I know he just wrote a big old book on, uh, on climate change. And I mean, what, why is Bill Gates not basically zeroing in on animal agriculture? What does he have to lose? I, I couldn't tell you. I mean, when you're yeah. that rich, I don't know, you know, what what where personal interest can even come into the picture. Um, the only thing I could say is it's it's a um, there's a, a kind there's a way in which people's focus is narrowed by their own culture. And Bill Gates is part of our culture. And. So he discusses uh, in the book in about a paragraph or two uh, the possibility of uh, reducing greenhouse gases by the world going vegan. And he says, yeah, some people might propose that, but really that's not possible because of our cultural celebrations. That's what he says, cultural celebrations. In other words, at the July 4th picnic, you have a hot dog and a hamburger. And at uh, you know, Thanksgiving, you have a turkey. And whatever, you know, whatever traditional uh, flesh foods people eat at different holidays. And he just can't imagine that changing. Well, I say, why not? Why can't you have a plant burger at your July 4th picnic? You know, why can't you have rice and vegetables at Thanksgiving and, and not to mention cranberry sauce and sweet potato and other things that are traditional Thanksgiving food? You know, what is so hard about this? Yeah, nothing. No, his actual quote, I have it right here is eating yeah. meat is a crucial part of festivals and celebrations. Yeah. 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 Jeez. Come on. And so for, for that, he's willing to let the planet go because of the festivals and celebrations. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And again, That's, Again, he is, and he, it seems like Al and a lot of other people, environmentalists, they're zeroing in on the burning as opposed to the killing. Yeah. And uh, it, it, it's just not going to happen that way. What about Paul Hawken and his drawdown uh, yeah. kind of theories? Well, and, and you know, will, will you, well, first of all, will you let people know who Paul Hawken is? Yeah. Paul Hawken is an economist and entrepreneur and author. Uh, he's probably just a great guy. I actually met him three times. Uh, mm. he, he wouldn't remember this, but I met him once when he was speaking at an organization called Tree People in Los Angeles. And I happened to run into him twice in Whole Foods in Los Angeles. And each time I chatted with him for a couple of minutes, 
Yeah. Um, and he was very gracious and he seems like a very likable guy. He's a brilliant guy. He's a good writer. He's made a lot of positive contributions, but he has a, 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 a personal characteristic that is in most cases, I would say a good thing, which is that he is not a judgmental human being. He doesn't like to judge people as being good or bad or anything as being right or wrong. He's very accepting. And, uh, you know, in many ways, this is a positive attribute. You know, I try not to go around judging people all day long for any choices they make, whatever. But the planet is at stake here. And so he was asked at a, and this is uh, something I found on the internet uh, at the, something called the Aspen Ideas Festival, I think. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. He was asked a very simple softball question after he spoke about his book, Drawdown. He was asked, couldn't we, uh, you know, couldn't we uh, make a big contribution by going on a plant-based diet? And his answer was something like, well, you know, it would be nice, but our book, we don't say this is right or this is wrong or this is good or this is bad. We don't make any judgments in our book. No judgments at all. It's whatever you want to do. And that's his, you know, that's his attitude. That's a nice attitude when it's applied to sexuality. Right, right. But when the when the earth is facing tipping points, you know, we have to say something is good and something is bad and something is right and something is wrong. Mm. And when we're destroying the earth for hamburger, that's wrong. Is is he vegan? I don't, know. don't know. I don't know. Right. Don't know. Well, he had a list. What is it? Is it the top 75 things you can do? Or 80, maybe? Or, or 80. And where where was going plant-based? Do you know? Um, it was something like number five, but it was something like, uh, what did he call it? More plants in the diet or something like that. He didn't, he never says stop right. eating meat and animal agriculture. Right. So, uh, in reading your book, you see some of the, some of the solutions that people are going for, especially these industries, like, for example, you mentioned how Cargill is now basically, uh, they're selling methane absorbing masks to the European dairy farmers for their cows, right? Yeah. I mean, it's like, <laughs> really? Like, you know, we, ha we have this problem in which animal agriculture is destroying the planet. And the simple solution is to stop eating meat. And yet we have industries and leaders coming up with one crazy way after another to try to allow us to keep eating meat until we all die, mm -hmm. you know? And so this one is to put masks on cows. They have another theory. They'll feed more seaweed to cows. So they belch less methane. Uh, then there's something called uh, regenerative agriculture where they, they, uh, uh, try to rotate the cattle on grass from paddock to paddock in a way that they think is going to restore the land. None of these things work. Right. And speaking of that, you also mentioned how much to what people think grass fed actually versus like the feedlot, feedlot cattle actually is worse for the uh, environment is, yeah. I mean, can you explain that? Yes. Um, first, let's keep it in context. About 1% of the meat that Americans eat is grass fed. Okay. So it's, this is a very small percentage. And, I, and maybe a fraction of that is what they call regenerative. Um, but the, the, uh, I, I, would, I would concede that probably the cows are happier being grass-fed than the cows in the concentrated animal feeding operations. Uh, but when they're eating grass, they belch more methane and they live longer or they're allowed to live longer because it takes them longer to gain the sufficient weight at which they want, uh, the meat industry wants to slaughter them. So when they're living longer and belching more methane every day of those longer lives, they are 
um, contributing more methane to the atmosphere. Also, they are degrading the soil as they graze. And the soil holds twice as much carbon as the trees. Mm. Um, and so, you know, and, and remember, it's the grazing land that we need to save the earth. We need to reforest it. So grazing is the activity that is preventing us from healing the planet. So in all those ways, grass-fed is worse for the climate crisis than the CAFO meat. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. So you, I think you have a suggestion, and maybe it's similar to Bill Gates, that we, we should try and plant a trillion trees. Is that right? Yeah, I don't know that Bill Gates uh, calls for that, but I do. Okay. Yeah. Uh, and I'm hardly the first. There are any number of organizations, and I note many of them in the book, that are working on uh, reforesting and rewilding. Rewilding. Uh, I, like, I like that yeah. term, rewilding. Yeah. Yeah. There's an organization called Rewilding Europe that's doing great work. You know, if Bill Gates really wanted to make a contribution, why doesn't he buy up all the cattle ranches in America and rewild them? Mm-hmm. Well, I think he, I think he owns, I think he's the largest private landowner uh, in the United States. Well, rewild that land bill. That would help. Mm -hmm. Um, So, um, uh, you know, the the, uh, rewilding is, is the really our best hope. Take as get it. Let's get as much land as we can and rewild it. I talk in the book about how Chernobyl, got mm-hmm. rewilded after the uh, nuclear accident. So there were no more human beings there and it t- turned to forest again. Yeah. Well, and you have a, a whole chapter. It's called basically something like leave it alone, right? Actually, let me see exactly what it's called here, but you exactly your point Chernobyl. Uh, you're say, you say there's nothing that does not improve. Right. And, and then you make the same point with uh, the oil spill. I think it was in the Gulf right. of Mexico somewhere. Yeah. And even yeah. with the oil spill, you explain. Yeah. Uh, when we had that terrible uh, oil spill, how long ago was it? About 2010. 2010. Yeah. In the Gulf of Mexico. Um, actually, what happened was it proved to be good for fish populations. Now, why would that be? Did they like their food oily? I mean, you know, why would the fish be, you know, uh, be more abundant after there's more petroleum in the ocean? And of course, it wasn't because of the petroleum. It was because the humans stopped fishing. (laughs) So it gave the fish a chance. It was like a fishing moratorium for a while. So uh, as as horrible as that, uh, you know, oil spill was, it was actually good for restoring fish population. I'm going to, I want to read, this is the last two paragraphs uh, of this book. And this chapter is called heart to heart. Um, I'm going to read this. Or we can simply take off the intellectual handcuffs and stop eating meat. We can thereby rewild more than one third of the earth. We can achieve drawdown by allowing trees and other vegetation to grow. Continued meat consumption is, quite simply, a recipe for the destruction of life on this planet. We can either, on one hand, improve our health and hunger and begin to cool the planet by moving to a diet of plants while reforesting as much land as possible and protecting the seas. Or, on the other hand, we can begin to say goodbye and tell our children to say goodbye to life as we know it. It's hard to imagine this to be a hard choice. Ask yourself where you stand. It shouldn't be that difficult. I hear you loud and clear. And uh, I think you did, you've done just an absolute brilliant job, uh, Glenn, with Food is Climate. I, I do believe that you are helping to create a new enlightenment that can't, cannot happen fast enough. So I, I want to thank you for this. Mm-hmm. Thank and I, rec- I, re- I recommend it. Everybody pick it up. It is, it's a slender, it's a slender book. You know, it's about 56 pages that talk about, you know, the food is climate. And then you have about 64 recipes that follow up. Well, that- don't sell, don't sell me short rip. It's 59 pages. Oh, 59, thank you, thank you, thank you. 59 pages. <laughs> thank you. Thank you. My bad. My bad. 
So put it by the nightstand and, uh, and, and eat it up. Well, Glenn, I appreciate your time today. Thank you for your contribution. Thank you for yours, Rip. Yeah. And let's, uh, let's continue to do everything we can to make this more of a, a plant strong world. Thank you, Glenn, for your research, courage, and compassion. As you have written, it is not beyond human capacity to heal the planet. The opportunity is in our hands. Or, let me add, on our plates. You can find all the links and resources from this episode on the episode page at plantstrongpodcast.com. We'll see you next week, but in the meantime, keep it plant strong. The Plant Strong Podcast team includes Carrie Barrett, Lori Kordowich, Amy Mackey, Patrick Gavin, and Wade Clark. This season is dedicated to all of those courageous truth seekers who weren't afraid to look through the lens with clear vision and hold firm to a higher truth. Most notably, my parents, Dr. Caldwell B. Esselstyn Jr. and Anne Cryle Esselstyn. Thanks for listening.